Last week, we, we looked at John's account of the burial of Jesus, and we learned why it's important. I gave you three reasons. Maybe you remember them, maybe you don't. Maybe you weren't here, you had something to do. Uh, they were the burial of Jesus affirms the reality of his death on the cross and the historicity of Scripture. Uh, it fulfilled Old Testament messianic prophecy, thus affirming that he is indeed who he said he is, as well as affirming the prophetic accuracy of Scripture. And it reps, represents something about us, uh, the fact that our old life of sin, who we used to be, uh, has been dead and, and buried and gone. So that's what we talked about last Sunday. This morning, we're going to look at John's account of the resurrection of Jesus, and we will discover why it's important. If you would be so kind, please take your Bibles and, and turn over to John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. That will be our text for this morning. I think I'll, I'll pray before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves and acknowledge your holiness, your awesomeness, your infiniteness, your beauty, your righteousness. Um, and we, quite frankly, thank you for who you are. And now we, we ask, Lord, that you send your Holy Spirit to come in power that uh, he might open our ears and our minds and our hearts to the truth, to the very gospel in which John has penned for us here through the inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, we pray that you would teach us about the resurrection today, and maybe we would learn something new about it, maybe not. But in any case, uh, it represents a multitude of important doctrines and truths and reality that, well, without it, we're sunk. And so we just pray that you teach us today of its importance, uh, that you sanctify those who are already in Christ, and that you save those who are not yet in Christ. We commit this time to you and pray that you would be glorified in all that is said now. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, by way of context, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had prepared and placed Jesus' body in a new tomb. At the, there was an actual garden at Golgotha, and they did this on Friday evening just before sundown, probably just before 6 p.m. This is where we left off last Sunday. So if you would be so kind again, please look at verse 1 with me of chapter 20. I'll read it and explain it to you. Uh, the text now says, Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We stop right there. The first thing that John does here is he informs us of when this actually occurred. He tells us that it was on the, the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. Uh, for some reason, it took me many years to figure out that the first day of the week is actually Sunday. I always thought it was the last day of the week. Anyone else think that? I don't know why I thought that. It's actually the first day of the week, and that's what's intended here. This is Sunday. So Jesus was crucified and buried on Friday, and 
rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, as I was beginning to study this, I thought, why is it that, that we Christians, and, and, and for all of church history pretty much, we have gathered on Sundays to worship the Lord? Why is Sunday the day that ancient Christians and, and we alike have just decided to worship the Lord on that day? Well, the reason why we're doing it is that we are literally following the pattern of ancient Christians. They set aside the first day of the week, Sundays, to come together to commemorate Jesus' resurrection. So every Sunday gathering was primarily focused on the resurrection of Jesus because it is the day in which he rose from the grave. You can see this in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. You see believers coming together on Sundays and also in 1 Corinthians 16.2. By the early 90s AD, uh, they had also given Sundays, the early Christians had also given Sundays a special title. They actually began to start calling it the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. And you can see that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. So by gathering on Sundays to worship and celebrate our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are literally carrying on a tradition that ancient Christians began nearly 2,000 years ago, which I think is pretty cool. So that's kind of the reason why we do this on Sunday. The Lord rose and we're following the pattern of ancient believers. It's a tradition that we've kept going and going and going. Now, that, that's not to say that you're some kind of vicious lawbreaker if you worship on a Saturday night or something like that. But for me, my conviction's always been it's, it's, a, it's a Sunday thing. And uh, sometimes out of convenience or whatever, if a church has a Saturday night service, that's, that's when you can go if you get stuck working every Sunday. But there is a tradition, and it's on Sundays. And I've had people here say, why don't we switch our service to Saturday night? It's like, well, then we won't be following the tradition of ancient Christians and we won't go to heaven. No, that's not right. <laughs> Sunday is, is the day, you know. Sunday, to me, that's the Lord's day. And, that's, and, and, and quite frankly, we're supposed to be worshipers all week, right? All week long. It's not like, oh, I wait to worship on Sunday. If you do that, you might not be a Christian. By being buried on Friday and raised on Sunday, Jesus' body was in the tomb during three days. His body was in the tomb for part of Friday, all day Saturday, and part of Sunday. So some people think, well, his body had to be in there on you know, three 24-hour consecutive days. Well, that's not at all what Scripture teaches. He was in the tomb on three days. So that's the way that you want to think of that. And, and by being in the tomb on three days, this fulfilled a typological prophecy in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, where the prophet Jonah spent three days in the belly of a great fish. I, I know that most of you are familiar with the story. Uh, I, I, you know, if you grew up in church, you were probably taught that you know, in, in your nursery or something like that. But Jesus actually predicted that like Jonah, he would spend three days in the heart of the earth, in Matthew 12, 40. So you can see the connection with, with Jesus being in the tomb on three days, connected to the Jonah passage and that typological prophecy. It also fulfilled uh, him rising on the third day or being in the tomb for three days. It also fulfilled Jesus' other predictions about him rising from the dead on the actual third day. Jesus predicted this. 
Uh, we can see that in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and Mark chapter 10, 33 through 34. Those are three occasions where he tells his disciples he's going to be killed and he's going to rise on the third day. So those predictions were fulfilled. And the resurrection of Jesus actually fulfilled a very important prophecy in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, which basically says that the soul of Messiah shall not be abandoned to Sheol, and the body of Messiah shall see no corruption. I believe I included that in your bulletin today. That's your quote of the week or whatever. The word, and I just want to kind of unpack this prophecy for you and how it relates to Jesus and his fulfillment of it. The the word Sheol appears about 63 times in the Old Testament, uh, and that would be according to the ESV, Sheol. It's S-H-E-O-L. In Hebrew, it translates as the place of the dead, and and it can even be uh, translated as the city of the dead. Now, Sheol is, is actually a real place. It's a, a real location according to Scripture, but its location is, is a bit mysterious. Um, the Bible refers to it as being down, Genesis 37, verse 35. It refers to Sheol being in the depths, uh, and that's in Deuteronomy 32, 22, and there was another text where it's referred to as being descending. So it's it's basically always referred to in Scripture. Those are some examples, but it's always referred to as being down, kind of like below the surface, in a similar way to what we think of hell as being down and low. It's even called a pit in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 12, and it's called a chamber, which is an interesting word, chamber, in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 27. Now, the Greek equivalent to Sheol, the Hebrew word Sheol, is Hades. And I think most of us are familiar with the word Hades. And and, and generally speaking, especially if you think of Greek mythology or what the Greeks have done with it, you you tend to think of hell as, as Hades. Now, according to the Bible, Sheol, or Hades, is a realm that features two divisions, and, and it has, it's got like one division here and one division here, and then it has a great chasm between them. So you get the idea that in, in, it's almost like, um, it would almost be like two cities separated by a large chasmic river or like the Grand Canyon. You can see one from the other, but you can't traverse the, um, the chasm that's there. And you can find this description in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. The Lord Jesus described it marvelously there. Now, one division is the holding place for the wicked dead. All unbelievers of all time, essentially, those who have gone, you know, gone into the grave apart from Jesus, those who have rejected God, those who have spurned God's law, whatever you want to call it, the unrighteous, that division, there's one division that is the holding place for what we call the wicked dead. And they are in this holding place until final judgment. And you can kind of see that in Psalm chapter 31, verse 17. So, so this division for the wicked dead is, is like a hellish prison. It has bars. 
Job chapter 17, verse 6. It has cords or chains. Psalm chapter 18, verse 5. It has flames and thirst. Luke chapter 16, verse 24. Uh, In it, in this division, there is no remembrance of God and there is no praise to God. Psalm chapter 6, verse 5. And in Job chapter 7, verse 9, it is described as a place of no return. Once someone has been placed in that district, that's it. There's no return from it. Now, the other division is the holding place for the righteous dead. Uh, Genesis 37, verse 35. Jesus refers to this particular division of the righteous dead. He refers to it as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom in Luke chapter 16, verse 22. And he also refers to it as paradise in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. You know the conversation he had with the thief who was dying on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Some people think that paradise refers to heaven, and it's okay to go in that direction. But I think what Jesus was pointing to is this particular division in Sheol. Uh, And it is known as a place of comfort, Luke chapter 16, verse 25. Now this place, this division for the righteous dead, seems to be, according to my understanding of studying Scripture and and that of many others, it seems to be where the Old Testament saints went to when they died. When an Old Testament saint, including John the Baptist, who was an Old Testament type of saint, when they passed away, they went into the righteous division of Sheol. And and they would remain in this particular locale until Jesus came and finished his work. And from that point, there would be a change. Ancient and modern day theologians teach that, that after Jesus died on the cross, John chapter 19, verse 30, His physical body was laid in a tomb, John chapter 19, verse 42. But, and this is interesting, but his soul descended into the lower regions of the earth, Sheol, Hades. And they draw this concept from Ephesians 4, 9. Why did he go down into this place, allegedly, to proclaim to the spirits in prison his victory? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, that's where they derive that. And then after he conquered death by rising on the third day, he ascended on high into heaven while leading a host of captives. And you can find this in Ephesians 4.8. Now, who were these captives, allegedly? Some say, well, this is just a reference to the gifts that Christ would give to the church. And others would say, no, this is a legitimate body of souls, the souls of people. So who would they be? Who did he allegedly go down into Sheol and deliver out of it and bring into heaven with him? It's the Old Testament saints. You see, up to the point of Jesus coming and completing his work, their place of comfort, a temporary place, was the righteous division in Sheol. But when Christ finished his work, somewhere between the burial and the resurrection, he goes down and he sets them free in a sense, and then during his ascension... He leads this host of captives into heaven, and then he provides gifts, apostles, evangelists, what have you, for the church. It's very fascinating stuff to study and to look at. Joe Rigney from Desiring God put it like this, and I thought this was an interesting article. Am am I all in on this view? I, I don't know. 
but it's very fascinating and interesting. And Joe Rigney put it like this. He says, following his death for sin, Jesus journeys to Hades, Sheol's, you can say that as well, to the city of the dead, and he rips the gates off its hinges. He liberates Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, John the Baptist, and the rest of the Old Testament faithful, ransoming them from the power of Sheol, Psalm 49, verse 15, Psalm 86, verse 13, and Psalm 89, verse 48. And he says, they had waited there so long, not having received what was promised, so that their spirits would be made perfect along with the saints of the new covenant. That's you and I. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 and 40, and chapter 12, verse 23. And he says, after his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven and brings the ransomed dead with him so that paradise is no longer down near the place of torment, but is up in the third heaven, the highest heaven where God dwells. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4. Very interesting. Very interesting theology based on what happens when Jesus is buried, who those captives are, Sheol, Hades, what have you. Now, if Abraham's bosom or side or paradise in Sheol was the place of the righteous dead pre-Jesus, what happens to the righteous dead post-Jesus? What happens to us? Do we still go down into, into Sheol? Do we still go down there and wait? No, Joe Rigney again says, now in the church age, when the righteous die, you know, those who believe, those who are in Christ, they aren't merely carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, as it says in Luke chapter 16, verse 22. They depart to be with Christ, which is far better, Philippians 1.23, right? So Paul, after the finished work of Christ, Paul teaches us that, what, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and the idea is in heaven with him. Now, did the other district in Sheol undergo any changes because of Jesus, right? Because obviously, he finished his work. There's a change with the righteous side. Is there a change with the wicked side? What happens to the wicked? Did Jesus change that up? One more from Rigney. He says, the wicked dead, however, remain in Hades during torment until the final judgment when Hades gives up the dead who dwell there and they are judged according to their deeds and then death and Hades are thrown into hell into the lake of fire. And where are we taught that? Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 through 15. So the wicked district of Sheol remains until final judgment and then it, all of Sheol, is cast into the lake of fire, at least that district. The righteous district has no purpose now. So why am I telling you these things? Well, I'm trying to thread the needle a little bit to get to the fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 1610 because Sheol is named there, right? It's, it's, It's mentioned there. Now, I believe this might be, this is possibly how the messianic prophecy in Psalm 1610 was fulfilled. When Jesus died, his physical body went into the tomb and his soul went into Sheol. While in the tomb, his physical body saw no corruption, no decay. How is that possible? The Holy Spirit preserved him. The Holy Spirit uh, put off decomposition. I don't know how he did it, but whatever he did, 
the body, the physical body of Jesus in the tomb was preserved. And after a few days in the tomb, uh, and if it hadn't been supernaturally preserved, it would have stinketh, right? Like Lazarus's body. That's what the King James says, it stinketh. And so obviously Jesus's body was preserved supernaturally somehow. It wasn't the fact that his body got packed with 75 pounds worth of aloes and myrrh. The Holy Spirit did something here so that the body of Messiah, Jesus, according to 1610 Psalm, so that it would see no corruption. So I believe that was fulfilled in that. And then because of the resurrection, Jesus' soul was not abandoned or left in the righteous district of Sheol, Abraham's bosom, paradise, like with the Old Testament saints. Instead, his soul ascended and was joined, rejoined with his physical body, which in that moment underwent glorification. I think that's how Psalm 1610 has been fulfilled, through Jesus' work in the burial and through the burial. Now, moving on, John tells us that Mary Magdalene first discovered the empty tomb. Very fascinating to me that, that all of the gospel writers have women first finding the empty tomb and Mary Magdalene. And boy, if you wanted to stake a religious claim, you wouldn't have based it on anything that women were doing back in these days because quite frankly, it was a very chauvinistic culture and it was, it, women did, there was not a high view of women and yet our gospel writers made sure to include that women first discovered the tomb. And not only that, but when they went to tell the men, the men didn't believe them. Not too good for us guys, right? Like I said a couple of weeks ago or last week, we have a habit of not listening to our wives. Eh, whatever. And these guys weren't married to these women, but they were like, that's an idle tale away from me. You know, it's like, you should have listened to them. Now, Mary Magdalene, she first discovers the empty tomb. She had come very, very early in the morning, the text says, while it was still dark. The synoptic accounts tell us that, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us that other women came to the tomb as well, but they didn't arrive until after sunrise. Mark chapter 16, verse 2. So you had a whole bunch of women that came to the tomb first before any men, but there was one woman who got there before the others. Maybe she ran along ahead. I don't know if they left together or what have you, but Mary got there first. And, and when she gets to the tomb, she notices that the stone that had been placed over the opening had been rolled away. And, and she does something a little silly here. She automatically assumes that the body of Jesus has been stolen by grave robbers. This is what the tale that she spins in her mind. This is her hypothesis. This is her theory. Now, if she had just walked up to the tomb and and stopped and looked in and investigated a little bit rather than walking up, seeing it open and assuming if she had just done that, she would have very likely arrived at a different conclusion, right? She would have saw Jesus's burial linens in a pile on the floor. Maybe she would have seen, uh, if she looked in deep enough, she would have saw the, the faced cloth, the head covering that was in there neatly folded up. It literally was neatly folded up on the platform where his body was once laid. Now, think about it. She's thinking grave robbers, but grave robbers would not have taken the time to strip Jesus' body of these things and then take it off into the night naked. Why would they strip off the burial linens and the head covering, right? I mean, it's like, um, 
I don't know what I could liken it to, but somebody breaking into your house and stealing something and leaving part of it behind, it's like, why would they strip that off and just take that? You know, it's like stripping the banana but leaving the peel. Why would a robber do that? And so if she would have noticed the burial clothes, I'm pretty sure she would have thought, okay, he couldn't have been stolen because they would have just taken the whole body out. They wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap it. I mean, that, that's, that's precious time. That could get you in a lot of trouble. Plus, how were these alleged grave robbers able to get past the Roman soldiers who had been guarding the tomb since Saturday? They were posted at the tomb early Saturday morning, Matthew chapter 27, verse 66. So you had this massive heavy stone over the tomb that no two robbers could have moved. You had several Roman guards or soldiers at it guarding it. You had an official government seal on it. How? I mean, these guys would have been like the greatest cat burglars ever. But still, why would they have stripped Jesus' body? That doesn't make any sense. Mary should have taken a moment to look inside, but instead she immediately turned and went in the opposite direction, the direction that she had come from. Now look at verse 2. It says, so she ran, she ran, she took off running. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. (laughs) We know that's John. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary runs to where the disciples were staying. And I think this is the upper room. She ran all the way from the tomb back through the city gates, into into the city, into Jerusalem, and ran all the way up to the upper room where they were always staying. When she arrives, she frantically tells Simon Peter and the one whom Jesus loved, John, that the body of the Lord had been taken out of the tomb and that no one knew where it was. She didn't know where it was. And, and she was perplexed. And at about the same time, the other women who were headed toward the tomb, they made it to the tomb. But when they arrived at the tomb, they were met by angels. There were angels posted now at the tomb. And, and these angels declared to these women that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he had in fact, been resurrected, right? Matthew 28, verses 5 through 7. Mark chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. Luke chapter 24, verses 4 through 7. They were met by angels, and they got a clear word from God through these angels that Jesus had, in fact, risen. But (laughs) these women, after they were met by the angels and pretty much had their minds blown. Now they run off and they go to the upper room to tell the disciples, to tell Simon, Peter, and John and the others what's going on. So now you've got Mary there and you've got all these other gals there. And they go up and describe to the disciples what they had witnessed, what they had heard, what they had seen. And yet the disciples were, as I said a moment ago, they were skeptical. They basically rejected their testimony. They literally called their testimony an idle tale. Well, that just sounds like an idle tale to me. Luke chapter 24, verses 10 through 11. But Peter and John were just barely, slightly more sensible than the other guys. They figured, well, what if these ladies are telling the truth? What if, what, if, what if it's true that, that Jesus has risen? Or what if it's true that his body has been stolen? What if it's true that he's not, in fact, there any longer? We better go to the tomb to investigate the matter ourselves. 
Now we look at verses 3 through 5. It says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> Bible's funny sometimes. This is like a get fit ad. Peter, you need help. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So Peter and John bolt for the door in the upper room, and they take off running toward the tomb. At first they were running side by side, but then Peter began to fall behind because John was younger and probably in better shape. We don't know why, but John basically blew his doors off. If you were doing a relay race, don't hire Peter. John gets there first, he reaches the tomb, and he does look inside, but he won't enter, but he does look inside. And he saw the linen cloths lying in a pile on the floor. Why would he not enter the tomb at first? Well, we're not told by him. He, remember, is the human author of this gospel. We're not told why, but I suspect it was because of fear. I mean, he was under the impression that something terrible had happened to the Lord Jesus' body because of Mary Magdalene's theory, right? They have taken him. I think he's been stolen by grave robbers. We don't know where his body is. So, so John is thinking, I, I don't know what to expect to see. So he kind of glances in, but he won't enter. Maybe it's a crime scene, and I don't want to contaminate the evidence. I don't know what's going through his mind, but I think it was fear. But Peter, on the other hand, had no such fears. He had no fear at all. He was very impetuous, right? I mean, there were times where he exampled fear. We saw that in the courtyard where he denied the Lord, but we also saw him draw a sword and cut off a dude's ear. I mean, he was like hot and cold. And he had no such fears. We look at, uh, we look at verses 6 through 7 now, and look at what Peter does. It says, Then Simon Peter uh, came following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So when Peter gets to the tomb, he's, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's breathing hard, he's panting, he's probably sweating, he's probably like me, out of shape. And, and he gets to the tomb, and, and he, you know, he kind of, runs right into the tomb. It's as if he doesn't even stop. He just keeps running and runs into the tomb. I wonder if he hit the back wall, you know? He runs into the tomb, and he begins to look around. And he sees the burial linens in a pile there on the floor, and he sees that face cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. It was folded lying on the shelf where his body was. This seemingly minor detail shows that the tomb was left in neat, orderly condition, which, what, further refutes the idea of Jesus' body being stolen by grave robbers. And just think about it. When somebody robs someone's house or car or whatever, when they go in and steal, when thieves do this, they don't, they don't leave things nice and tidy. They leave a big mess, kind of like what you saw with the earthquake the other day with the images on the news with stuff being thrown all over. I've had my cars broken into throughout the years, and they've never let, I mean, it's like, they, what, they're not going to take it to prime shine. 
vacuum it out and say, okay, we're sorry about the broken glass. No, you get in and sit on the broken glass and realize your window's gone, then you look up and find your stereo's gone, and your heart falls out. This happened to me all kinds of times when I was young. So robbers are, are not going to leave wherever they've broken into, they're not going to leave that in neat, tidy condition. There's no way they would have done that here. And so this just, again, refutes the idea of grave robbers. Now, incredibly, this is the false narrative the religious leaders spun to cover up the resurrection. This is, in fact, the very story that they brought, you know, that they concocted and put together and started to perpetuate Listen to Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. It says this, some of the guard, and speaking of the Roman guard here, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and, and taken counsel, now what we're talking about here is the Sanhedrin coming together to figure out what's going on with Jesus' body. And it says this, when the council had assembled, they were discussing this, and when they had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's the story that you're to tell people when they ask you why the body's missing. And it says this, and if this comes, this is what they told him, if this comes to the governor's ears, if Pilate hears about this, we will satisfy him and keep, him, keep you guys out of trouble. We'll tell him something, we'll blow a little smoke in his direction, we'll keep you guys out of trouble, because if they'd been found sleeping on the job, they would have been executed. And it says this, here's what the soldiers did. Okay, they said, no, we're not going to make up a story and lie for you. No, that's not at all what they did. It says, so they took the money and they did as they were directed. And listen to this detail. This, this gospel was written, uh, I don't know, I don't know how many years after the actual event, uh, 40, 50 60 years after, roughly early 90s, listen to this. John puts this detail, and this story, that robbing of Jesus' body, has been spread among the Jews to this day. Did you know that this story is still being perpetuated by Jews? That if you were to talk to a, a pious Orthodox Jew, they would tell you, no, the body of Jesus was stolen by his disciples. They believe, it's like Hitler said, if you tell a lie enough, people will receive it as truth. And they believe this is the truth. Now think about this. They're saying that the disciples, it wasn't just grave robbers. The Sanhedrin said it was disciples, his disciples that came in and did this. If the disciples had come at night and stolen Jesus' body, why would they dishonor the body of Jesus by stripping away the linen cloths and head covering? You know, first of all, once a body was buried, you were not permitted to touch it. You would be rendered unclean. Secondly, to strip a body that had been sacredly prepared for burial was a major, major sin. It dishonored that person. And the Jews were big on this back, uh, back in these days and prior to this nakedness. You never wanted to see a family member naked. Think of what happened with Noah and his son. He put a curse on him. Nakedness, is, it's, it's sinful to see someone's nakedness, even by mistake. And what these guys were proposing is that the disciples came in and stripped Jesus' body naked and carried it off into the night. This would have been so dishonoring. There's no way they would have dishonored Jesus' body in this way. There's no way they would have looked upon his nakedness. The disciples loved Jesus and, and worshipped 
Jesus to the best of their ability with the knowledge that they had. There's no way they would have dishonored his body like this. And the, quite frankly, the presence of the burial linens shows that the story the religious leaders concocted, that the disciples stole Jesus' body, is false. The presence of the grave clothes proves that his body was not stolen by the disciples, not stolen by any grave robbers. And, and the neatness of the tomb, the neatness of the fabrics lying neatly in a pile and the other part folded, all of these, these details, they just, they just refute any idea that he had been stolen or his body taken or anything like that. Plus, as an added bonus, how could the disciples steal Jesus' body to stage his resurrection when they did not yet understand his resurrection? They did not yet understand all the times that he said, I will be killed and rise on the third day. They, they still did not understand that piece of the puzzle. So they're going to break in and stage resurrection when they have no idea that he's supposed to rise. They were, I mean, you've got them at the tomb now, and they're still trying to figure out what's going on. So there's no way they would have done this. Uh, let's move to verses 8 through 10. It says, Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and... Pay attention to the detail. He saw and what? Believed. And it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the ignorance is still here, even though he's believing. Verse 10, Then the disciples went back to their homes. That's just bizarre. You witness the resurrection, you go home. Maybe you go home to watch a movie. I don't know. Maybe you go home and put the Passion of the Christ back on. I've got to see what led up to this. It's just weird. After Peter enters the tomb, John follows, right? Peter kind of gave John a sense of encouragement there or boldness, so John kind of follows him in. And it was the, the empty tomb combined with the undisturbed burial linens, uh, combined with the neatly rolled up face cloth. That information, that evidence was enough to, uh, to totally persuade John that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. He just, the, the evidence was clear to John. It was clear to John. He believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. From the dead and that's why he put that here. But verse 9, he corrects still here. He says, verse 9 states that he and the other disciples did not yet understand the scriptural reason for him rising from the dead. So, so he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence was clear, but he still didn't understand exactly how that worked in the scripture. And as with John, did Peter also believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? Because he's in the tomb and he sees all the evidence as well. What happened with him? Did he have this illuminating moment like John? It's not clear from the gospel accounts. Luke 24 verse 12 may suggest that he did not. Uh, it says that he marveled, he marveled at what had happened, which can also be translated as he was wondering what had happened. So John is like, he has risen. Peter should have said, he has risen indeed. Peter goes, I don't know what happened. He was marveling. He was perplexed. He was confused. He was trying to figure it out. He was wondering. So I don't think that he was, I think he was confused and not convinced like John. After investigating the tomb, after seeing these things with their own eyes, 
John includes this interesting little detail of them returning to their homes. Uh, It's just you've witnessed probably the most profound next to the cross or equal to the cross. I mean, you can get nailed to a cross, and that's extraordinary, right? You can see that with your own eyes. It's extraordinary. But for someone to literally be raised from the dead and, and not be in the tomb, this is, that's to me at another level. And to, to witness that, in a sense, to come after the fact, but to witness something that significant and super, supernatural that has happened, and then just to go casually go back to your homes. That's interesting to me. And, and maybe what it proves to us is that they still did not have the clearest understanding of these things, because I doubt they would have just went to their homes. Now, from verse 11 all the way through to chapter 21, verse 14, John focuses specifically on Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Okay? First, he describes how Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in verses 11 through 18. Second, he describes how Jesus appeared to the disciples, verses 19 through 31. And third, he describes how Jesus appeared to seven disciples, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. And then after that, he has a a meeting with Peter, and he gives Peter a charge, and then that completes the Gospel of John for us. Why did John devote such a a big chunk of, of his Gospel account, 45 verses to be precise, to these post resurrection appearances. Why did he do that? Well, for, um, basically, he, he did it because he wanted to erase all doubt in regards to Jesus' resurrection. The, the post-resurrection appearances prove that Jesus rose from the dead. The, the people whom Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, before his ascension, they actually became witnesses to his resurrection, right? And what does Jesus' resurrection prove? It proves John's main theme, the Messiahship and deity of Jesus Christ, right? That's his goal. If he can show us from the gospel account and from what played out in history that Jesus did, in fact, believe we are to draw one conclusion, and that is that he is Messiah, that he is the divine Son of God. So John painstakingly records these interactions with these people who saw, literally, physically saw Jesus, interacted with Jesus after he rose. Closing. I told you at the beginning of this message that we were going to discover why the resurrection is important. And I'm sure that God has already given you several reasons, but I have five for you. Five. First, as I've already stated, it proved that Jesus is indeed Messiah, is indeed the divine Son of God. The Apostle Paul wrote, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And actually, if you think about it, it was impossible for Jesus' body to remain in the grave, just as it was impossible for the divine nature of Jesus to die on the cross because God cannot die. So it was impossible for the human 
nature of Jesus, the human side of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus to remain dead because of its union with his divine nature. And Peter said on the day of Pentecost, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. That's in Peter's phenomenal first sermon. So it was not possible for Jesus' body to remain in the grave. And in raising him from the grave, God declared beyond all shadow of doubt that this Jesus, whom lawless men crucified and killed, was indeed, is indeed, the divine Son of God. So that's the first important truth there. That's the first reason why the resurrection is, is important. It proves that he is the divine Son of God. Second, the resurrection of Jesus assures us of our justification. Paul wrote, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. If Christ were still in the tomb, it would mean that God's wrath was not satisfied and that we would still stand guilty before God. But as Paul also wrote in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and, and raised for our justification. It is not that the resurrection accomplished our justification. Jesus' sinless life and sin-bearing death did that, but rather that it assures us of our justification. We can be certain of our justification by the fact that Jesus rose. That's what is meant. It was the, the Spirit of God, the, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead. Romans chapter 8, verses, uh, verse 11a. And by that act, God declared Jesus' atoning sacrifice. He, he declared that it had been accepted. The penalty for our sins was paid in full. It's as if our account was settled. The resurrection was, was God's declaration that he had canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, Colossians 2.14. All of this to be said, it has to do with our justification. We know that we are justified. We know that we have a right standing with God. We know that that is acquired through faith, but we know without a shadow of doubt that the resurrection of Jesus proves that we have been justified because the Father raised him in acceptance of his sacrificial death for our justification. Does that make sense? It's awesome, awesome doctrinal truth. Third, the resurrection of Jesus assures us that we serve a living Savior who is now interceding for us. I mean, think about it. If he were still in the tomb, he would not be a living savior. He'd be like every other significant religious leader throughout all time. Every significant religious leader. Mohammed went into the tomb, never came out. Buddha, into the tomb, never came out. They all go in. They all die. They don't come out. Jesus comes out. And this tells us that we have a living savior who is interceding for us. The writer of Hebrews wrote that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Chapter 7, verse 25. Paul was even more emphatic when he wrote, Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is interceding for us? Romans chapter 8, verse 34. The one who died for us now lives to intercede for us. 
And when we go through struggles of any kind, even when we struggle with sin and temptation and these sorts of things, any kind of struggle that we face, that we go through, we must remember that our great high priest, he is risen, he is enthroned, and he is interceding for us. He is praying for us. He is even intervening for us. Remember that. That'll help to get you through a lot of struggle and a lot of trial. Know that he's got your back and he's there for you and he's working it out. Fourth, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our future resurrection. It does. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of a resurrection harvest yet to come. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23 the resurrection harvest spoken of here will come at the second advent when Jesus returns. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died in Christ will be raised to live forever. And we who are living, if there are still some of us believers around when he comes, we will not have to die and then be resurrected. We will be transformed in that moment. And he says this, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 to 53. Therefore, because we're awaiting this resurrection, we're awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we, eagerly, we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior he will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. So, again, why is the resurrection of Jesus important? It ensures that we will be, or assures us of our resurrection. It ensures that we, in fact, will be resurrected, even into a body like his that is glorified and so far beyond this. And you must bear in mind or keep in mind that even the dead, those who are the wicked dead, they will be raised too to face judgment. So there is a dual resurrection that happens here. You know, the wicked get raised as well as the righteous. Now the timing of this is debatable, but there is a resurrection for all. That was four. And lastly, fifth, the resurrection of Jesus is important because it is the catalyst for our spiritual resurrection and new life, okay? The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, raised us, lives in us, and gives life to our mortal bodies. Romans chapter 8, 11, uh, and we see that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. For what purpose... Has the Spirit raised us up spiritually? Has He given us spiritual life, caused us to be born again? That He indwells us. That's what is referred to here by Paul. For what purpose have we been raised up like Jesus? That we have the Spirit in us. For what purpose? So that we might walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Think of it like this. Because Jesus was raised from the dead by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, believers are raised, possessed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can live lives that are pleasing to God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 The resurrection of Jesus is important because it is the catalyst for us being born again, raised by the Spirit into new life, 
possessed by the Spirit so that we might walk in newness of life, so that we might live lives that are holy and pleasing and pleasing to God. Without the resurrection, none of that happens. We can't be born again. We can't live for God. We can only toil in false religion. The resurrection of Jesus is, is of infinite importance. I could give you a hundred more reasons why, but time on a single Sunday never allows that. My question to you this morning as we wrap up, have we been raised? Have we been possessed? Have we been empowered by the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? Ask yourself that question. If it's true of us, our lives will be, should be different from what they were before we were raised. You live a certain way as an unbeliever, as an unregenerate person, as one who is merely born of this world, right? You live a certain way, but if you've actually been born again of the Spirit, raised up to new life, your life is going to be different. There's no way about it. It is impossible for it not to change. People are always talking about how I love Jesus and I know Jesus, but, you know, and then, you, and then you really get to talking to them and you find out their language is way off and you're like, well, you know, you shouldn't talk like that. You shouldn't be getting salt water out of a freshwater stream. You know, you've read the passage, right, in James and these things. And Well, you know, I just do what I do and I'm covered by grace. You know, it's like, well, you, you should not like that language any longer. I mean, I, I got to admit to you, once in a while stuff comes out of my mouth, I'm not happy about it. You know, if you squeeze me, sometimes things come out of me. I make discoveries about myself. Should be the Holy Spirit coming out. It's not. But you should be different from the point of impact on. You, you, you can't be a Christian and be the same guy or gal that you were before you became a Christian. You can't be that person any longer. We talked about it last week. The burial of Jesus is significant because that old man has been killed on the cross, crucified, and buried, is dead and gone, covered with earth, not to return. So if we have indeed been raised by the same spirit that raised Jesus, possessed by that spirit that raised Jesus, our lives should be different from what they were before. And they should be getting better, not worse. Sanctification is a process of bringing you unto the likeness of Jesus, making you more holy over time, not less. Now, I get it. Sanctification's like this. But there should be progression, not regression. It's very important that we understand this because there is a, a multitude of people out there who name the name of Christ who are unregenerate and not different, but they think they're going to be okay. They think they're going to heaven. They think they're saved. And they are the very ones the Lord will look at and say, away from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But we did all these things in your name. Fundraisers. Doesn't matter. If there is no fruit, there is no root. Go back to the abiding in Christ teaching in John. Go back to the vine and the branches. If there is no transformation, if we have not become more like Jesus over time, and I get it, when you're new to it, it's, it's slow progression, but it's still there. There's still improvement. There's convictions and these sorts of things. But if there is no transformation, we have no reason to believe that we have been spiritually resurrected and given new life 
in Jesus Christ. No reason to believe that. You got nothing to bank on. And so what would the next step be for you if I have described you? Humble yourself. You know, quit telling yourself you're okay. Quit telling yourself you're going to be okay. Quit, quit repeating Satan's lie to you because he wants you to think you're okay. You're not. You're going to go to hell. That's reality. The next step would be realize this of yourself. Humble yourself. Call upon the Lord Jesus for mercy. Cry out to Him in prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Confess your unbelief. I've spent my life not trusting and believing in you. I have believed the lies. I have believed these other things. Confess your unbelief. Confess your sins to Him. Ask, ask, ask Him to be gracious that He might send the Holy Spirit to you to raise, to possess, to empower you so that you can be saved, so that you can begin to live for Him instead of continuing to live in a lie. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning and the impact of the resurrection of your son. It means so much. And I'm reminded just now of the scripture that I cited earlier from Paul that says, man, if Jesus hasn't been raised, our faith is a, a futile exercise. It's utterly worthless. And he also said in another place, we ought to be pitied among men that we have been duped into believing some kind of mischievous lie. But I know without a doubt that Jesus has been raised because it's what the Scripture declares. And I know without a doubt that He has been raised because I know that I have been raised. I know who I was nearly 20 years ago. And I know who I've become. Still so far from the mark, but a work in progress by Your grace. Lord, if there be any man or woman here today who is not in a saving relationship with you, has not been raised, possessed, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would work that miracle in their heart. It's not something that they can conjure or just merely accept. In fact, if there's anyone here that even goes in that direction, it's because of your sovereign grace. It's because you're at work in them. And we pray that. Sanctify those who are in you. Save those who are not. Be glorified in all that we do, in all that we say. May we sing and worship you now as we praise you and reflect once more on the resurrection of our beautiful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his matchless mighty name, in the name of Jesus, amen.